Mr Bennett's property consisted almost entirely in an estate of 2000 a year, which, unfortunately for his daughters... Hi, I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 7 to 12 of Pride and Prejudice. Harriet, can you summarise these chapters in a sentence? Well, I'll give it a go. Jane catches a violent cold riding to Netherfield in the rain, which means she's too sick to come home, and when Elizabeth walks over to visit, she's also invited to stay, spending three evenings in conversation with the Bingleys and Darcy, during which time she is amused by Miss Bingley's vain attempts to captivate Darcy, but fails to notice that Darcy has become increasingly bewitched by her. So my count of that is I've said and twice, but I've got three Jane Austenisms in it, which gives me a score of plus one. What about you? We learn about the Bennett's financial situation and that a militia regiment recently stationed at Meryton has opened a store of felicity to Kitty and Lydia before moving to Netherfield, where, as a result of Mrs Bennett's scheming, Elizabeth is nursing a sick Jane, Darcy is becoming more deeply attracted by the sweetness and archness of Elizabeth's manner, and Miss Bingley is becoming increasingly jealous. Right, I had two hands... But two Jane Austens. Which gives you a score of zero. Oh. Which basically means I win this week. Do you? (laughs) I was interested that you spent quite a lot of time focusing on the opening section, even though the bulk of these chapters are about the time at Netherfield. Well, one of the reasons I had started it like that is I think that Jane Austen was doing a sort of cut and paste with the old manuscript of first impressions and she had all these bits and pieces that had to be said after the first bit everyone's going to wonder well we know what Darcy's got we know what Bingley's got we don't know what Mr Bennett's got how much has he got and then a second thing she thought she had to fit in beforehand was the militia and squeeze that in so I think she's been cutting and pasting Mm -hmm. and I think she's Perhaps I don't really think it, but it's a suggestion that she has picked up some bits from her old manuscript, shoved them in there, and then gone on to this absolutely delightful bit, which is one of the best bits in the book, The Visit to Netherfield. (laughs) Is it really necessary to introduce the militia at this point? No, no, it's not really. Because it's revisited at the end of these chapters when they return from Netherfield, and that leads into the following bit, but... We don't really need to know now that the militia has arrived. No, except except that Kitty and Lydia are going walking with Elizabeth because they want to visit the militia. And we've also got to know a bit more about Kitty and Lydia because when they turn up at Netherfield, they sort of giggle together and then they ask Mr Bingley to have a ball Mm. and they want all the officers to come. True. And we're also told when Carolyn Bingley writes to Jane, she says the gentlemen are dining with the officers. True, I'd forgotten that too. Yes, yeah, so she's, she's, she's given us a, a possibility for a background for those two things. So mm. I think that might be why she decided to plot them in there. Yeah, true. Yeah, it is actually necessary for what follows. What I'm wanting to look at all the way through this is how she's dealing with the love-marriage theme and is it going to be reconciled? Because in this one, again, she stresses the question of the incompatibility of the, of the Bennets or the touchiness anyway of the, of the Bennets. Uh, they're still wrangling with one another and he's putting her down and she's misunderstanding him. But then the second thing that is raised 
which is again going to be a significant point, is how important marriage is in a family. Because when Darcy is being teased by Miss Bingley, she keeps suggesting what bad marriage it will be for him because of the uncle that lives in Cheapside and the very vulgar aunt living in Meryton. And of course she makes that joke about putting up the portrait of his relative, the judge, next to Mr Phillips, the attorney, because they're in the same profession, just different lines. And so that raised that theme that is really the basis of Darcy's well, what his pride is objecting to in Elizabeth, what he has to overcome. Well, of course, there's that lovely line where he says, were it not for the inferiority of her connections. Yes, yes. I think right. that really sums it all up. Yes. I notice another point you've put down in your notes is the fairly unconvincing plot mechanics. I find it very difficult to really believe that that the Bingley sisters would be so encouraging to Jane. I mean, they're not so stupid they can't have seen that Bingley is falling for Jane. And they even know that Darcy is, is starting to have his eye on Elizabeth. And yet, out of the whole of Meryton, out of the four and twenty families that the Bennets visit, the only people they can think of to come and spend an evening with them is Jane. Maybe that says something about how nice Jane is compared to everyone else. Or the other thing I keep thinking it might be, it shows how terribly vulgar these four and twenty families are, that the only people they can bear to spend an evening with is one of the Bennett sisters. <laughs> well, the only other one we really see is Charlotte Lucas, and she's not vulgar. Well, it's partly this feeling I get that somehow it must be a neighbourhood with lots of reasonably small properties, that Mr Bennett's 2000 a year and the land he owns may be typical. And if there are any really big landowners, any sort of earls or dukes or something, they simply don't mix with their neighbours. I don't think there are any earls or dukes or anything because they would surely have been mentioned if there were. Yes, there are, but there aren't anybody of the sort of level, say... Of Jane, of the many down family that Jane Austen was was friendly with, the Big Withers, or of the family like the Knights, you know, that her brother was adopted into, who again have several large properties and so on. And I also get this feeling that some of Elizabeth's charm is the fact that she's never really had to be in any society where she didn't count as one of the top girls, you know, the, sort of the most popular girl or the top set and that sort mm. of thing, because she's so full of she's mm. so full of confidence and social confidence. Mm. Although in terms of Elizabeth's charm, at least for Darcy, I think one of the things that obviously appeals to him is her vitality. Yeah. The fact that you know she's walked there and she's flushed with the exercise and she's very alive as compared to the much more restrained just strolling around the estate that yeah. the Bingley sisters have. Or well, even only around this shrubbery. I don't think they ever go, go much beyond that. <laughs> Because the book does um, several times emphasise Elizabeth's enjoyment of physical activity. The description of her walking over says she walked, continued her walk alone, crossing field after field at a quick pace, jumping over stiles and springing over puddles with impatient activity and finding herself at last within view of the house with weary ankles, dirty stockings and a face glowing with the warmth of exercise. Yes. And then later on when they're walking in the garden and the others walk together and she goes off on her own it says she then ran gaily off all through the book we do get this repetition of elizabeth and physical activity 
Yes, yes, I hadn't quite noticed that before, yes. So do you think this means that as well as the social intellectual stimulation Darcy gets from Elizabeth's conversation, there's also sexual attraction just from the fact that she's so much more vital than anyone else? Well, then the, the sort of the sort of women he's known up till now, anyway, mm. all these accomplished women, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who could read and dance and sing, and <laughs> but not necessarily French, <laughs> yeah, but not jump over stiles or walk three miles in in the mud. No, no. But the other thing you see is, as well as Darcy's growing attraction to Elizabeth, the fact that he's very conscious of having to keep control of it and not let other people see it, although not very successfully since Miss Bingley has picked it, but certainly not let her see it. And one of my favourite bits is on the very last day she's there, it says, Steady to his purpose, he scarcely spoke ten words to her through the whole of Saturday, and though they were at one time left by themselves for half an hour, he adhered most conscientiously to his book and would not even look at her. So you get this picture of Darcy so terrified of his feelings for Elizabeth that he's hiding behind his book. Yes, yes. Well, so terrified of showing them, but also yes. so the sense that they're so strong he has to just do nothing. This visit to Netherfield is one of the most delightful parts of the book. But I've just sort of been looking at what makes it so delightful. And I think part of it is that the conversations when Elizabeth is present are all intertwined with a comic character. The first talk where she's sort of showing her wit so nicely, there's Mrs Bennet there, entertaining the reader at the same time. And then all the conversations she has with Darcy, there's Miss Bingley there, sort of trying, trailing along and trying to get him. So you've got the comedy of the way he's responding to her. Is that something unusual for somebody showing the first connections with people to have this undercurrent of comedy there? Does does it enrich it? I think it does. Yes. Also, is it the comic background or is it a comic foreground and you're seeing... I'd actually say it's the other way around and you're getting the comic foreground and then the backstory is you're seeing Darcy's interest. Yes, what you're seeing, I think, is you're seeing Elizabeth illuminated by this comic contrast. There's the contrast of Mrs Bennet's vulgarity. There's the contrast of Miss Bingley's, I don't know what you call it, well, partly her her anger, but also her irritating behaviour to Darcy and the fawning on Darcy. And so it's, it's against both those. So, yes, so you're seeing Elizabeth against this much better background. Mm. I think that's part of the charm of this whole section Mm. but the other thing is again uh, what this section is doing is giving us a real picture of Darcy's character the way he rebuffs Miss Bingley all the time I think he's being funny he's uh, minimally showing off to Elizabeth okay I hadn't thought of it in that way I might need to go back and reread the chapters again I just thought of it as being he's just shutting her down all the time but she keeps on pushing I love the description of her at one point when he's talking to Elizabeth and disagreeing with her and Miss Bingley agrees with him and she's described as his faithful assistant. Yes, yes. Otherwise, I just wonder why he keeps going if she's there pursuing him. Because he likes Bingley. Yes, because he likes Bingley, but even so. One thing I'd sort of forgotten is that aside from the evenings where everyone is spent together, 
Miss Bingley and Mrs Hurst do actually spend some time in the sick room with Jane along with Elizabeth. When Elizabeth first arrives, after she's gone up to Jane, it says when breakfast was over they were joined by the sisters and Elizabeth began to like them herself when she saw how much affection and solicitude they showed for Jane. Which actually I don't believe they, they showed it. Well, they might have showed it, but I don't believe it was real. <laughs> True. When Jane is finally well enough to come down after dinner, it says she was welcomed by her two friends with many professions of pleasure. Elizabeth had never seen them so agreeable as they were during the hour which passed before the gentlemen appeared. Their powers of conversation were considerable. They could describe an entertainment with accuracy, relate an anecdote with humour, and laugh at their acquaintance with spirit. So they are actually very, very socially adept. And it's interesting that we never get these conversations, that all the conversations we hear while they're at Netherfield are the communal ones when Darcy and Bingley and Mr Hurst are also present. So we don't get any dialogue of these times that just the ladies are together, either when they're visiting Jane in the sick room, they are all four there, and yet I had completely forgotten that Mrs Hurst and Miss Bingley go up to the sick room. Oh, they, or, spend, a lot, they spend time in the sick room. When the men are, men are off doing something else, they go into the sick room and behave themselves. Mm. And which I suppose it also half explains, only I'm not sure I quite believe it. We're given no examples. But that is obviously why Darcy puts up with them. You know, they're very nice, they're very good in company. Although, again, it's interesting the language that's used because at one point, Elizabeth has left the room to go back up to Jane and as soon as she left, Miss Bingley begins abusing her and abusing her is the term Jane Austen uses, which is really just an extension of the bit about Finding laughing at their acquaintance with spirit. Yes. Yeah, it's still, One of the things that sort of continues to uh, surprise me is that they think it's the right way to put Darcy off. Elizabeth is to say how awful she is, not to assume that he's going to be a bit contrary about the thing, (laughs) the more you say it. And I'm still puzzled that they have not started on Jane in front of Bingley. Surely they're not so blind. I mean, he's over her all the time. How are you? You mustn't be, you, you know, you mustn't go home too soon. Let's get the apothecary. He's really keen about her. It's a plainness to anyone. And yet they they don't put Jane down to him. But then it does say at one point that Miss Bingley's jealousy of Elizabeth had grown so much. So I think that might be the difference. She's actively jealous of Elizabeth because she sees Elizabeth as displacing any possibility she has with Darcy. Whereas they... Well, Darcy says at one point, I had seen Bingley in love before. So yes. they probably, they see he likes her, but he they don't so. necessarily yes. think anything of it because it's happened before. Yes, and this is this is just another one of these girls he's sort of, he's flirting with yeah. rather than that, that it matters. Mm. Yes, I, I suppose that explains it. I'm sort of fascinated that what they see, or what Jane Austen sees, a serious conversation seems to be that sort of 18th century essay style, the one that came up between her and Charlotte. They're interested in character, and so they're still discussing the same sorts of things. They're discussing Bingley's character, they're discussing Darcy's character, in the same way that they had those discussions about pride. And I think right at the end of the chapter, when they come back, they have to hear Mary's views on morality and character. It's just that all the focus for serious conversation in this book 
not in any of the others, is on this question of character. Elizabeth interprets character, they discuss character, what are their faults? And then a longish discussion on what are Darcy's faults and Bingley's faults. Mm. And yet somehow they they do come across though as completely naturalistic conversations. Oh yes, completely. It's just this is what they're interested in. Mm. It's what Elizabeth's interested in. That that that's just what they talk about. Unlike in say Northanger Abbey, where Catherine is and Isabella, and then also Catherine and Eleanor and Catherine and Henry talk about books. Yes, but they don't talk about books in this. No, not at all. No discussion of favourite authors or anything mm. like that. Which is actually something I'd put down as something I've, I've actually always kind of wondered about. All this discussion of having a library and the book Darcy is reading and Miss Bingley has only chosen her book because it's the second volume of his. What would be in his library? What would be in Bingley's library? Because Darcy is surely not reading a novel from the type of novel you'd find in a circulating library. He must be reading something more serious. He's probably reading essays, so it's probably someone's collected essays. He's reading the first volume of essays, she's reading the second, something Mm -hmm. like that. Probably Bingley hasn't got much of his own library there, but there's probably a library already in Leatherfield. So on the first evening Elizabeth's there when everyone else is playing cards, but she doesn't want to because she suspects they're playing rather high. Yes. Um, She goes and looks at the books on the table and Bingley immediately offers to get her more from the library and says, and I wish my collection were larger for your benefit and my own credit, but I'm an idle fellow and though I have not many, I have more than I ever looked into. So that kind of suggests that some of the, many of the books, there are books he brought with him, even if Netherfield had its own library as well. If anyone like his father who had made, who had made money or his grandfather who had made money in trade, one of the ways of setting yourself up as a gentleman is to have a proper library, you know, to, to buy it. Mm. But Darcy doesn't have to have bought his because... Well, well it, he says it, it ought to be good. It has been the work of many generations. And then Miss Bingley says, you have added so much to it yourself, you're always buying books. Yes. So he's obviously not buying a library off the shelf, well, a library as it is. There'd be no way Darcy would do that. He'd have all the standard stuff. He'd be just buying new things or more obscure or more Mm specialised. One thing I wanted to say is these chapters are really the only chapter, not just the chapters where we're introduced in more detail to Darcy, to Bingley, to his sisters, but really the only ones where we properly see them because Bingley and his sisters disappear for most of the rest of the book. Yeah, and Dar- anyway, they never come in, you know, except moving the plot forward. But also, Darcy, I was thinking about what you were saying last time about how we see inside Darcy's head and we know we're never in any doubt what his feelings are for Elizabeth. Yeah. But after this scene, once we leave Netherfield... Yes, we don't. We really don't anymore. Maybe, maybe We see a- him only... After that, we really see him through Elizabeth's eyes. Yeah. Yeah, possibly at the Netherfield Ball, again, we get inside his head, but once the story has left Netherfield, yes. we never see inside Darcy's head again. Until he tells us what's happening yes, there. Yes, we only see it through Elizabeth. We, we're never and, told and, and, what he's And feeling. through Darcy's le- letter and, mm. and through his explanations, but never in the authorial voice. No, and I was actually reading the other day a book about the making of the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. Yes. And Andrew Davis, the scriptwriter, said that one of the things he wanted to do was to show us Darcy. He describes Darcy as being enigmatical um, at first, and I thought, no, that's actually completely the wrong way around. 
you're just bringing out on screen what the author has already told us in the book and then later on it's not that we learn more about Darcy later on we've been told everything about Darcy later on and we see it externally later so did you have a favorite sentence from these chapters I've got, in fact, two favourite sentences. They come just after Elizabeth's been querying Darcy about his faults and then Mrs. Miss Bingley asks what she discovered from her examination. And she says, I am perfectly convinced by it that Mr Darcy has no defect. He owns it himself without disguise. <laughs> Mine is also connected with Miss Bingley. It's after Miss Bingley has said that Elizabeth is one of those ladies who try to recommend themselves to others by running down other people, by undervaluing their own sex. Darcy says, There is a meanness in all the arts which ladies sometimes condescend to employ for captivation. Whatever bears affinity to cunning is despicable. Miss Bingley was not so entirely satisfied with this reply as to continue the subject. (laughs) I just love this picture of the relationship between Darcy and Miss Bingley. See, this is actually, Elizabeth isn't in the room, so this is not Darcy showing off for Elizabeth. This is just Darcy responding sort of politely, but in this case kind of borderline because you can tell what he's really saying, or at least Miss Bingley can, which is why she's not so entirely satisfied. And I love the understatement in that authorial comment at the end. The character I've chosen for us to talk about this time is Mr Bingley, mainly because these chapters are really the only time we get to properly see what he's like as a person. Um, We only got little snippets in the first bit and some authorial description, and after the Netherfield Ball, when he's mostly off just talking with Jane, he completely disappears until the Pemberley scene, when again he's not on stage very much. So this is where we get to see him most. And he's really a nice person. Oh, he, he's, he's lovely. He he's, comes through such a sort of a charming, cheery person in the sections we've just been reading. I mean, he's very lively, very funny, very self-deprecating, but not really in the least not proud of himself. But <laughs> anyway, but he's really, yes, he's really nice. And he's very funny, but... Because it said in the first section that when it was talking about how clever Darcy was, that Bingley is by no means deficient. And he's oh. certainly not. He makes he absolutely oh. takes part in all the conversations, leads them. He's Yes, I mean, like that lovely company. bit where uh, she says, where Miss Bingley says, it would be nice if they could have conversation. And he says, but not near so much yes. like a ball. I actually like that whole exchange because before that, He says, if you mean Darcy, cried her brother, he may go to bed if he chooses before it begins. But as for the ball, it is quite a settled thing. And also when, again, a debate with Carolyn, when she says he must take Pemberley as his model when he's building up his library. And he (laughs) says, I think it would be easier just to buy Pemberley than to try and imitate it. (laughs) Yeah. No, he's being sort of a bit deferential to to Darcy, though, when he says that. Mm. But that that's funny bit where he says about in his own house on a Sunday evening, <laughs> yeah. Darcy being so so impressive in yeah. some way. Yeah. Yes. The other thing with Bingley's conversation, particularly when you compare it to Darcy's, is that Darcy's conversation is always quite stiff, even when he's being kind of humorous, which he is sometimes. It still it still feels very nineteenth century his use of words and everything. Whereas a lot of the words that come out of Bingley's mouth, you could have them in a book written today. I suppose um, so, yes. Well, yes. For example, I mean, I think a really good example is when Darcy says, nothing is more deceitful than the appearance of humility. It is often only carelessness of opinion and sometimes an indirect boast. 
Yeah, very, very formal speaking there. And Bingley's response is, and which of the two do you call my little recent piece of modesty? You could see that in a book written today, word for word. Yes. Whereas you wouldn't see the words Darcy said in most books written today. No, perhaps you wouldn't. Now, one of the things that's always concerned me is how did Darcy and Bingley meet? Mm. They come from very different circles and... But they're really good friends. They're really good friends, long-term friends, and his sisters have been allowed into Darcy's private life. Oh, the obvious thing is they went to public school together, they were in the same house. And if they if they had met one another at school, it would be perfectly possible for Darcy even to have come and visited Bingley, certainly for Bingley to have visited Darcy, which meant that when they both turned up in London, the Miss Bingleys could immediately become friends with Darcy, turn up, and that's how they'd get to know Darcy's sister. The problem with that is that Darcy seems older. I can't remember if it says it anywhere, but I certainly feel that he's older. If Darcy was a few years ahead of Bingley, would they have really got that sort of relationship while they were at school? No, they wouldn't have. Of course, if Bingley was the younger boy who was assigned to looking after Darcy's fire and making his toast and all that sort of thing, um, that was certainly something they did later in the 19th century. Would it have been around even in the early 19th century as a tradition, do you think? Well, I, I don't know if it would have been a tradition, but it was probably happening. So they could have met that way. The other possibility is that they, re- they met at a fairly small school, like the one Jane Austen's father was had been running. Mm-hmm a private tutor who only took a few boys into his house where the ages would be pretty much in together if there's only 12 or 14 boys. (laughs) I once, though a long long time ago, years ago, I met someone, a young man at a party who'd done a lot of research on English watering places in Jane Austen. He was absolutely convinced they met at a watering place. Okay, but it, watering places as in as, as in Brighton or Worthing or Lyme or somewhere or or coming to that bath something like that. Mm-hmm. But I I, don't, I personally don't think it could have happened there. It could have happened on the hunting field. It could have happened if they'd been invited to the same place for shooting. They've got to have met in a way where they would know one another well enough to see one another frequently in London. I mean, that could have happened on the hunting field. But the big thing is that they were in London at the same time and the Bingley sisters then started to see the Darcy family. Of course, another thing you get with Bingley is he seems sort of pleasant and affable and friendly and nice. And we learn later on, and of course it's slightly foreshadowed here, that when Darcy and his sisters tell him not to go back to Netherfield, he acquiesces quite readily. So that makes him, that kind of makes him seem like he's a bit too easygoing, a bit too soft. But there is this one bit in the chapter, it's where Mrs. Bennet has come to Netherfield with Lydia and Kitty, and just as they're leaving, it says Mrs. Bennet began repeating her thanks to Mr. Bingley for his kindness to Jane, and with an apology for troubling him also with Lizzie. Mr. Bingley was unaffectedly civil in his answer, of course, you'd expect that, and forced his younger sister to be civil also and say what the occasion required. Yes. And of course, that's that's just after Mrs. Bennet has been vulgar and embarrassing and Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst have been sort of laugh- giggling, yeah, yes. laughing about it. So he can put his foot down and have some control over his sisters, which of course is also something we see of Jane in this chapter because when... She asks Mr Bingley 
to borrow his carriage to go home because she can't get the family carriage and he wants her to stay longer and it says Jane could be firm when she knew she was in the right. Yes. Or worse to that effect. So both he and Jane, even though they're presented as incredibly nice and quite um, self-effacing and yielding, but when it comes right down to it, they can be firm when they have to. Yes. And there was one other thing I wanted to say about Mr Bingley, which is not actually in these chapters. It was from the earlier chapters right back at the assembly ball and Mrs Bennett gives Mr Bennett the list of people Bingley danced with which is that first of all he danced with Miss Lucas then he got introduced to Jane and asked her for the two next then the two third he danced with Miss King and the two fourth with Mariah Lucas and the two fifth with Jane again and the two sixth with Lizzie well that placement of when he danced with Lizzie right after dancing with Jane and remember Darcy made his very rude comment about Lizzie at a time when Bingley was dancing with Jane. So I think it's quite possible that there is an example again of Bingley feeling, possibly feeling guilty or possibly just trying to make reparations for what Darcy said by immediately asking Lizzie to dance with him. Particularly since she hasn't been dancing the last dance. Yes. Of course, it's possible that that comment might have been made earlier in the evening, the time he was dancing his first two dances with Jane. But you get the sense that it's a bit later in the evening. Yes, yes. Because by that stage, Bingley's two sisters are dancing with other people. Yes. So again, I think that's just a nice little touch of Bingley being a nice person who can spontaneously do nice things for people. Yes. Well, what I thought I'd talk about today in the sort of background section is the idea of accomplishments. We know there's quite a long discussion of what a re- what a really accomplished lady is in this section. And it starts off with Bingley's definition, where he says all young ladies, are how they're all accomplished, they all paint tables and cover screens and net purses. And Miss Bingley and Mrs Hurst jump on him and say, that's not accomplishments, accomplishments are quite different. And where he's described the sort of crafty things that people could learn from anyone, they say, no, no, they're describing how they have to learn all these arts, the arts of painting and singing and playing the piano and and dancing is one of them. And also the other thing they insist on is... Uh, that they must know languages. Now, what these things all amount to are these things that have to be taught by experts. And the way it was done was you got in male masters to come and teach people things. But, of course, the Bennett family didn't even have a governess. No, but they had masters. Elizabeth says at one point we had masters. True. So, so they would have had a master to teach them the piano. They would have had someone, or they would have gone to someone, but they would have had someone come round and teach them all the piano. They would have had somebody, a Frenchman, who came once, you know, once a week, say, and taught them all French if they were going to do Italian. But I don't. Oh no, Elizabeth might have wanted to do Italian. They would have had someone to come and teach them Italian. They would have had a drawing master to come along and teach them drawing. And this was really the way most practitioners of the arts was the day job for quite a lot of them. And right up in the top of the aristocracy, a lot of the girls were taught by the, you know, the really top painters, the ones who were doing the big society portraits and exhibiting in the Royal Academy, would still also turn up at girls' schools. And this was almost the purpose of the ladies' seminary, the girls' school, because instead of having to sort of get the local drawing master, somebody would set up 
a house in the middle of a town where there were good masters and they'd have three to 20 girls come and stay with them and the masters would turn up there and give the girls lessons in all these different accomplishments there. So in Emma, would Miss Goddard's school that Harriet Smith goes to have been a very, very low-end version of that? Very low-end. It was where the girls were sent to sort of be out of trouble and get themselves a bit of education. It had an old writing master, but it probably had somebody come teach the girls piano. It might have had somebody who came and, and gave them sketches. The Miss Bingleys, on the other hand, had been educated in one of the first private seminaries in town. So they would have had the coaching of somebody who probably was a sort of a good watercolour painter or somebody who perhaps, if they didn't sing themselves, had been a notable singer. And so that's where they got their accomplishments. Of course, Jane Austen's a bit sniffy about that seminary in town, isn't she? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, they were supposed to be very snobbish places. Mm. But but definitely, I mean, that was it. They went there for the sake of masters. That's why they didn't keep their... People fond of their girls didn't keep them in the country. They sent them off at considerable expense so they could have the teaching of these masters for the arts and for languages. Miss Bingley also makes the comment about needing to have a certain something in the way she moves... Or is that just her being... I think that's being sort of, this is what I can do. Um, No, I'm not sure. No, that's why they're taught dancing. Mr Turveydrop turns up in one of the Dickenses, I think in Bleak House, and that's his job, is to teach dancing and deportment. So Mm. they were taught how to get into a carriage and out of a carriage and how to stand up and how to move this way and that way. But... Darcy, on the other hand, doesn't even think much of those artistic accomplishments because he comes in and says an accomplished woman must also have had the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. Now, he's referring to what was called the blue-stocking tradition of women's education, which was all these women who used to sort of hang around Dr Johnson but believed women could be learned and women could discuss morality and character and so on. And even there were books written by them. There was one, a very famous one, written by a Mrs Chapone called Letters on the Improvement of the Mind, addressed to a lady. It was first written to her 15-year-old niece in 1773, and by 1800 it had been through at least 16 editions. And it was sort of full of bits of religious instruction, bits of how you behaved in society, but it had chapters and chapters on studying history, studying geography, studying... I don't know if it has studying grammar, but anyway, it had a whole series of these. Well, Mrs Chapone would have been available when Jane Austen was growing up and would have been well-known when she wrote First Impressions. By the time she came to write Pride and Prejudice, there'd been another bestseller on the market. It was called Caleb's In Search of a Wife and it was written by the moralist Hannah Moore. And it was published first in 1809. In fact, Jane Austen was funny about it in her letters. She was refusing to read it, but it really was, you know, very significant. And it told about how Calebus went on and the sort of wife he wanted. And it's probably what Mr. Badassi was thinking of when he <laughs> when he described his accomplished lady. And and that's the sort of thing Mary would have been using to. Oh, drive, very much. Wasn't because it? Mary wants to be seen as accomplished. 
That's what the sort of thing Mary would have been reading. And right at this end of this section, when they get back to Longbourn, they found Mary, as usual, deep in the study of Therabase and human nature and had some extracts to admire and some observations of threadbare morality to listen to. <laughs> so she's probably been reading Hannah Moore. So looking at the pop culture versions, I'd actually like to keep on talking about Bingley a bit because it's interesting seeing how he's shown in these scenes in the movie and TV versions. Both of the film versions compress all of those three evenings in Netherfield down to just one evening, which is not surprising given that they're films. The visit to Netherfield is absolutely crucial in the book. It has to be there. And again, as you said, it's the main place we see Bingley anyway. Yes, and yes, some of the miniseries, when they have more time, you don't see all of the daytime stuff, but what you do tend to see is, I think, more evenings at Netherfield. Yes. Whereas um, in the others, you just get everything compressed into one evening and they've just picked key elements of it. Yes. So, you know, sometimes they include some bits and sometimes they include other bits, but the taking a turn around the room with Miss Bingley is always included. Yes. That's obviously considered to be a key point. Though I noticed in the 2005 version, while they're taking their turn about the room, Darcy isn't actually looking at them. He's continuing to look at his letter, which kind of defeats the purpose of it. Well, I mean, but that was always going, do you mean Miss Bingley's purpose or the filming, the filmic purpose? Well, the whole point in the book is that he does stop and look at them. Oh, that's right. Of course he does. Yes, yes. Because he doesn't look when Miss Bingley's walking on her own, but as soon as she gets Elizabeth to join her, he looks up at them. Yes. Whereas in the 2005 film, he continues not to look up at her. Oh. Another thing you see in both films, which shocked me both times because it seems so anachronistic, is you see Bingley in Jane's bedroom. Oh. Which is very wrong. Yes. What's he doing in Jane's... Oh, because she's sick, so he's yeah. coming in. I don't know. It's possible. I mean, if her maid was there and his sisters were there, bedrooms were... People did after have all have levees, even in an earlier period. <laughs> but um, certainly in the black and white one, it's when the apothecary is with her and diagnosing her and Bingley keeps oh, popping his head up over oh, a screen. Oh, no, 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 yeah. that, that doesn't seem yeah. right. It's a funny scene because the apothecary is um, giving technical language to explain what's wrong and then he pops it up and said, what he means is you have a bad cold and a headache. Oh, right, yes, which is a, it's quite Bingley-ish. Yes, it is. <laughs> But in the book, he doesn't visit her bedroom. You hear that his servant has come to her bedroom and the sisters themselves come to the bedroom as well as sending their maids. He himself doesn't come. He he definitely doesn't come in the book, no. No. And yet Bingley is actually in a lot of the adaptations. Bingley is presented as much less intelligent than he comes across in the book. Oh, no. As we were saying, he's smart. Yes, he is smart in the book. But somehow in the... um, in the 1995 version, as is typical with a lot of the 1995 version, he does actually have dialogue directly from the book. But somehow, the way he delivers it, he comes across more like an affectionate puppy dog. Or a Rick, Bertie Wooster. Yeah, possibly a Bertie Wooster. But yeah, he's friendly, he's bouncy, he's affectionate. He's not necessarily all that bright. Is he coming across as a sort of ho-ho Henry or...? Not really as bad as that. Um. Not, not as bad as that. Um, he's just, as I said, he, he's more like a big puppy dog. Yes. Whereas in the 2005 version, I think they are making him really quite unintelligent. Not to the extent of, say, Mr. Rushworth. 
But yeah. they've given him this um, rather awkward hairstyle that's all buffed up at the front. And a, a moment I remember particularly is in the one version they have of the conversation in the evening, he's basically sitting on the sofa playing with the tassels of a cushion. Oh, and, right. Oh, that, now, and what it actually made me think of was in Georgette Hayer's book, Cotillion, where Lord Dolphinton is given a book of pictures to look at and told he will find them very pretty and interesting. Yes. That sort of thing. Although, having said that, I did notice in the book, in one of the evenings, I think it's the, the last evening, Mrs. Hurst is occupied mainly with just playing with her rings and bangles. Yes, that's, yes, I, I noticed that too. So it's probably the same sort of thing, but somehow when you see it on screen... He just, he's coming across no, well, as really not at all bright. And do, do, the, do they put, any of the films put Mr. Hurst in? Um, yes, some of them do, some of them don't. They're... Because, I mean, he, he's the thicker that comes through. That's not necessarily No, 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 no that's not the case. No. He's the one with very limited attention. Yeah. Very limited interests. Yes. Some of them do include the Hursts, some of them don't. I think both miniseries include Mr. and Mrs. Hurst, but... I think the 1940s movie doesn't because it's really trimmed down, massively trimmed down, in fact. I also noticed that the Marvel comic book version also excludes the Hursts. Yes. Um, again, I guess trying to just narrow down to the key people. So. Yes, well, you don't need them when you can tell the story without them. Yes, they really are in many ways quite redundant. <laughs> Except it would, it makes the, the party at Netherfield seem to seem a bit small, mm. almost as though Bingley and his sister are there as husband and wife. Yes. Whereas if you've got a little house party. But I guess if the Hursts weren't there, I don't know if it says it in the book or if I've heard it in other places, that he has his sister staying with him to keep house, which by which I assume would mean tell Talk the housekeeper to... what to do, deal with the servants. Yes, yes. But whereas, interestingly, Bingley is less intelligent in some of these adaptations, in the modernisations... He's, um, I actually did some comparisons in Bride and Prejudice. Um, the character of Balraj is a barrister. Yes. Whereas Darcy in that, he's very wealthy because they own a chain of hotels. Yes. <laughs> in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the video blog series, Bingley, and his name is Bing Lee. <laughs> they apparently only discovered several episodes in when presumably people contacted them and they made a thing of it that Bing Lee in Australia is an electronics store. <laughs> uh, but yes, in that version, Bing Lee is a medical student. Yes. And in the modernisation called Eligible, the book written by Curtis Sittenfeld, the character Chip Bingley is a doctor. So obviously they've gone for these, for Bing Lee, they like giving him these high prestige professions. So it's probably worth noting that Chip Bingley has been in a reality TV program. And actually, both he and Bing Lee in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries end up leaving the field of medicine to do something else. But again, that, they've made sure he's, you, you realise he isn't a, um, a, a really wealthy man like Darcy. No, no he's, he's high in a profession rather than yes. high in just incredible wealth. Yeah. <laughs> because in, in Lizzie Bennet Diaries, Darcy, again, is a business owner. In this case, he owns a, a web digital company. Oh, right, yes. Um, Bingley in that does um, come across as a little bit less bright, perhaps. Initially, you only see Bingley and Darcy through Lizzie and her sisters dressing up and role-playing scenes involving oh. them. Bingley does appear on camera when they're staying at Netherfield yes. for a completely different reason. It's not because Jane's got sick. It's because the house is being redecorated and they have to move somewhere else. Oh, yes. In that, you do see Bingley on camera for the first time and he's kind of 
not told that this is a video diary. Instead, he's told that this is a video recording to go back to the family. So oh. he does come across, I guess, as a little bit less intelligent. Yes. But not in the same way he is in the 2005 film. Yes. The other, just going off on a tangent, by not showing the other characters in Lizzie Bennet diaries, you continually, you don't see Darcy and you don't see Darcy and you continually see Lizzie dressing up and pretending to be Darcy and being nasty, being funny at his expense, like saying, yes. saying lines like, I dislike smiling, it contorts the face. Yes. <laughs> um, so the tension and anticipation really builds up. And then, of course, the first moment when you actually see him is the first proposal scene. Yes. Which I thought is, was quite an effective way to deal with it. Yes. So we had a comment on the Facebook page after the first episode. Pam contacted us to say that she thought one way Mr Darcy's fortune might have become known is that Miss Bingley might have spread it around to make herself seem important. Oh, that's a real possibility, isn't it? <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, it's something I can really, really see Miss Bingley doing. The only thing that I have a slight difficulty with is for her to do that, it would have meant she was quite early on engaging with all the hoi polloi of the people in Meryton that she really didn't seem to want to have much to do with. No, well, she, she could sort of murmur it, say, to somebody who seemed fairly superior. Hmm. I thought that was a really interesting comment. It hadn't even yes. occurred to me as a possibility. Yes. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. We hope you'll join us next time for chapters 13 to 18 of Pride and Prejudice. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and the summarise in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We'll be back next time.